Claire. This is the second half of our two-part interview with Dr. Jenna Scott about autism spectrum disorder. I hope you enjoy it. It's such a complex diagnosis, even now. Like, if you were to see the medical diagnosis, it has like five lines on it, right? With all these qualifiers and levels. Um, but the actual history and how we've conceptualized autism is pretty roundabout. Like, it it took a few few steps forward and backwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, not always for the good. No. Um, you know, we we started off with I think it was canner the canner autism it was like in the 40s the really early 40s um where it was just kind of this that's where it kind of popped up in our radar right and there were just a lot of descriptions of you know this is a syndrome that has I think he he coined the term you know extreme autistic aloneness mm-hmm. and you know anxiously obsessive need for sameness and mm-hmm. that's where we got echolalia, uh, delayed echolalia um, and so there's a lot of just descriptions at first and I know like Asperger's syndrome the early research on that came out around the same time too yeah um, but it was world war it was all like world war ii it was just circumstance like the yeah. of world war ii in autism is fascinating Yes, yes. Unfortunately, we took a little bit of a detour in the 50s and started conceptualizing it as more like a psychiatric disorder. Yeah, like kind of like the schizoaffective sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. They were really viewing it as like this childhood schizophrenia type of um, instance. And then you had a lot of, I think it was the behavioralists that were coming up at the time about cause and effect. And so, yeah. you know, what caused this? And clearly it's aloof and unemotional mothers, right? Oh, God. The, oh the refrigerator mothers, right. Yeah, there's all that. <laughs> yeah. That, that was in the fifties and I'm just like, oh my goodness. And then you had a lot of like electroshock therapies oh. and just all these attempts to cure or just remove them from societies. Like the, the asylum ratio of people who likely had autism. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, But you know, we, we finally got our stuff together a little bit and it wasn't until the eighties that we really started seeing this as a developmental Mm -hmm. thing. Right. Um, and then it was in late eighties that we really started adding, it kind of got fractured. We had like pervasive developmental disorder. Oh yeah. NOS and then Asperger's and then childhood disintegration, uh, disorder. Um, from, from what I know though, they were really hoping that everything was genetic. So. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's true. I did. I (laughs) part of, that's also part of neurotribes. They start out talking about, we're going to map the human genome. We're going to do it. We're going to find the autism gene. Yes. And so they, I, I think if I, if I read and remember this correctly, like all these kind of fractured, um, you know, diagnoses that, that even got more in the mid nineties where you had autism, then PD, DNOS, and then uh, Asperger's. Um, they were all these like distinct 
diagnoses and they were really hoping that the genetics would clarify it. And of course it didn't when the genome project was done. They found there were just hundreds of systems right. of genetics that were kind of having all these smaller contributions. And so we, we finally just said, you know what, let's put this all under one umbrella. Um, because, you know, clinicians were also inconsistently applying their diagnostic criteria to all these different camps that we had that were kind of describing the same kind of outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why it kind of all got grouped recently in 2013 um, under autism spectrum disorder. There is kind of that extra camp that did come out of it from um, that kind of subsect of what we'd consider the, it, it was a distinct population in Asperger's syndrome mm -hmm. that just did not meet or didn't follow the diagnostic trajectories and outcomes of what you would see in autism. So we do have that kind of extra floating social communication pragmatic. That's what I was going to say. That's the social communication. Yeah. 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 It's basically autism without any of the behavioral patterns and rigidities and mm -hmm. whatnot. Um, but what I kind of take from it all is really just understanding autism and the people who have it in their own right. Like there's, we have a tendency to over pathologize and label and, um, you know, just really kind of put it as other. And with this recent change in diagnosis of kind of putting everything under an umbrella, really further emphasizing this idea of a spectrum mm -hmm. um, and then adding what we call levels. We've referenced that, which is really based off of how much a support, um, how much support an individual will need under those two social communication and then behavioral patterns. Mm -hmm. And it really just gives a sense of, I don't even know how to phrase it. It's, it's not a cure. It's not something to be cured. You know, unfortunately, I always viewed it as these are human beings that unfortunately are in a society that forces all of this social and verbal stuff on them. So it's not that they need to be changed or cured. Honestly, it's just giving supports to adapt in into a society that won't adapt to them. Right. Yes, exactly. And there we go. I, I, I finally got there. I was like, well, that's wow. Okay. That's exactly right. We don't talk about our role. And I, I think like somebody, I went to this virtual presentation and it, it really matches with what you're saying. And I really feel like they hit the nail on the head. They talked about how, you know, we spend all this time talking about how people on the spectrum don't have empathy, which of course is not true, right? Oh my goodness, no. Struggle with some perspective taking and not even all perspective taking, some perspective taking, right? Depending on the yeah. person. But the empathy part, of course, is wrong. And, and they're like, but we don't even talk about our role. Like we're saying, oh, you don't have empathy for people who are neurotypical. But we're not talking about how people who are, and when I'm saying neurotypical, I mean not on the spectrum because obviously you could have ADHD and not be yeah. on but I, I mean, like, you don't have autism. So we're taking, we're saying that people who are on the spectrum struggle with empathy and understanding the right way of being. And it's like, what if we flip that? How good are we as a society at really trying to understand people on the spectrum? We don't put much effort into it. 
you know? So like, where's our, that's kind of like our empathy issue. And I had never thought about it that way. And I was like, that is so dead on. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's helping them survive in a world that won't adapt to them. And it's when you take that approach to, it just, it opens up just a world of possibility for parents. You know, I get this, the number one question, I don't, I don't care how old the kid is, um, if their parents bring them in, they could be three or they could be 16. And I typically get the, the question, oh, well, are, are they going to be able to have relationships? Are they going to live on their own? Can they have a job? Mm-hmm. And it's when I, I kind of present this view of, you know, what is, what is not autism? And it's just really about how to best support them and get kind of these interval supports across their life and their own developmental milestones that it really just opens up this world of like, Oh, that's doable. Yeah. Like we can totally do that. Yeah. Focusing on the quality of life, quality of relationship and giving the most autonomy to people who are on the spectrum that leads to very enjoyable lives and enjoyable relationships with their family members or they do have romantic partners. Yeah. I mean, I think that's at least from my expect, from my perspective, my experience. Um, I, the reason I like the approach of seeing it as a big part of someone's identity. So not like pathologizing it, but this is, this is your way of being and this is part of your identity is because then people can learn to that self-acceptance and they can learn like, this is me for this. This is how autism looks for me. This is one of my things I need. This is how I do self-care. Like I'm not going to go to the Christmas party for work. I will totally go one-on-one out to like a bar with someone. Right. But I'm a coworker and have drinks one-on-one. I'm not going to go to the Christmas party. That's too much. Right or the holiday yeah. party. Sorry, I'm being like very um, like <laughs> biased with my holidays, but, um, but I'm not going to go to that, but I won't do that. But I, or I'm going to do this thing and I know it's important for work. And then, you know what, I better take the next day off because I'm going to be exhausted from this big event thing that I have to do. And that's okay. Cause that's what I need to recover. Or, you know, maybe kids would be a little rough for me, or maybe I want to have kids, but maybe I don't want lots of kids, right? Or maybe if I have a child, I'm going to have to make sure that I have this and this built into my life so that I can have the space I need to recover from the overstimulation. Just all of that, you know? Yeah. And, and it's so, I, I never anticipated how much effort and discussion that I would have to put in for people to really just get to see just how normal all of this is, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm horrible at math. Don't, don't get me anything around numbers. So what do I do? I pick a, a lifestyle, a career that suits my own strengths and minimizes the areas that I'm like, I'm probably just not that good at. Mm -hmm. We all do this, right? Mm -hmm. 
we all find how we want to live. Like, I can't live in a city. I've got too many sensory stuff. I don't like it. Mm. And so, you know, it's not that much different, that kind of view and that concept. Right. It just might mean that there, there are other areas in life that might need to be accommodated or shifted or geared towards something. Mm -hmm. and it's just it's so human yeah. <laughs> the things that I talk about about what is needed are just fundamental human stuff right that we typically get anyways but because of the way that the brain the social brain forms in a little kiddo they're not going to be learning it the way we learn it you know, through those social interactions on the playground or in the class. They just need to learn it in this other way, but they still need to learn it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love the new way that autism is being viewed. I just feel like it's just, um, I, I don't know, like it, it just, it's, I feel like that self-acceptance piece is so huge. And I feel like when you can get to that and when you can get away from the, pressure of, I need to fix this. I need to do that. It, it just, it like takes the stress level down, you know, a notch and all that anxiety that often goes along with, or, or often I should actually probably say always yeah. autism. It's like, you can kind of at least get rid of some of that or manage some of that because now you're looking at it from this other point of view. And mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I really like that point of view and I really like the whole movement within the autistic community about pride and self-acceptance and identity. I just think it's huge. And I, I think part of that is because some of the things in our society have changed in a way that is more functional for people on the spectrum, right? Like mm -hmm. um, more remote work or work that's more tech involved, like just things that aren't going to put the social pressure on and the exhaustion all day long. And it's almost, I wonder, like, as if people can get their head above water because now they have found ways to be social online in a way that's not exhausting. And they have a little bit of extra like mental bandwidth to be able to really think about things and, and, you know, consider where they fit in the world and how the world is, you know, um, in terms of its interactions with them. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I can't tell you how many times I've had uh, when I previously did therapy with, you know, teens and children on the spectrum. And even now with assessment, like, I, I don't like going to school. I can't talk to anyone. But then I ask about their gaming, and they have, like, this whole crew. They're in, like, clans. They're yeah. on Discord while they're, like, gaming. Yeah. And they're showing some really amazing social, like, social skills conversationally. And parents, sometimes parents get really confused on that. They're like, he can't make any friends, but he has like 50 friends online and he's doing this on his game. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's less stressful. Like everyone is more on an even playing field, right? No one can see the gestures that you may or may not be using or the face that you may or may mm -hmm. not be making. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it evens the playing field a little bit more. There's a lot more control. And honestly, there's rules. There's yeah. rules and etiquette, etiquette being a loose word, on kind of the gaming community and how you talk and what's 
what are jokes, what are not, what's sarcasm, what's not. Um, the, what I found is the, um, sometimes, you know, teens on the spectrum can be a little more blunt. They don't, you know, they don't always catch how things land right. or what might be socially appropriate for a context or a situation. And I can't tell you how many times as a gamer I've been online and I hear someone talk in the way they're talking and they're being super blunt and everyone thinks they're just being a jokester. Like they're, they're doing burn culture. And I'm like, I don't think they are, but like, it's so accepted <laughs> and it's, and they become like the social star of the group when they, they quote unquote burn someone and they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So there's this place. Um, yeah. And, and I'm not a gamer. Like I, anything I know about gaming is all through my kids, which is, you know, like a 13 year old and a 10 year old. So it's, you know, not sophisticated. It's, and, but um, yeah, from every, and I guess also from my clients, but it does seem like there is this outlet where there is this place in the world where you can have, you know, interact, social interactions that aren't anxiety provoking. Right. And you can like experience what it's like to have this, you know, um, social experience without the anxiety and without the stress, without the exhaustion. Um, yeah. Yep. And it's, and it's completely okay if you just stop talking and leave. Like that is a, that's a big thing. Like most people just stop talking and just leave. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That's perfect. Like if, if yeah. you don't have to figure out like, how am I going to say goodbye or all of that social thing? You're just like, you yeah. could just do what feels natural. Yeah. You know, people either assume that you just got disconnected. Your power went out. Um, if you're a kid, your mom called you for dinner. Like some people do say goodbye and good night, but it's completely acceptable just to go. That's so funny. I had no idea. It's like, it's perfect. Yeah, you can't do it in the middle of a game, but, you know, if you guys are just chatting. Yeah. So. But, I mean, but that's like a rule, right? You can't do it in the middle of the game. So as long as you know that rule, then you're okay. Yeah. Unless you get disconnected from the actual game. But, yeah, you, there's really no pressure to continually talk while gaming unless it's about the game, like you're coordinating. <laughs> I mean, you can if you want, but really people just want to know – like, where's the enemy at? Do you advise on the enemy? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if I have any other questions for you. Um, I talked, oh, we talked a little bit about the genetic piece. So many of the questions I had are um, kind of things we've already talked about. I guess maybe one is, you know, who can diagnose autism and how is it diagnosed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, it gets it gets a little complicated just because there is like there's an educational classification that happens um, in the schools and through its own system. Um, but I'm assuming that you're talking about just the medical. I'm talking about clinical. Yeah, I'm talking about clinical, not the educational okay. stuff. Yeah, because the educational stuff is all over the board. I mean, it really is. They don't do an ADIR. You know, yeah. like there, it's not if it's a lot of times rigid adherence to an ADOS, so then you don't have some of those. Oh my goodness. It's, it's the thing that has become, I guess like a source of contention for me 
in some of the places I've worked in the past because that yes. like that inflexibility um, and rigid adherence to the rigid adherence to the ADOS, I think is mm-hmm. coming. It's a problem, you know, when kids really need help and parents yeah. don't necessarily understand how to go get a clinical diagnosis. So I always found it incredibly ironic of how rigid I have some been. people can be <laughs> when assessing for rigidities. Another I, same thing. <laughs> I have made that exact point to coworkers in the past. And I'm not going to say, you know, whether this is like where I currently work or this is place. I'm not obviously talking about like yeah. my current job. I'm talking about in the past as a school psychologist, not saying where. I have had that experience and I have had like the exact same thought. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. Um, so there's, okay. So it's a large question, but let me get, get through the easy ones first because okay. there are, there's a couple of sub points I really just want to emphasize, but um, you know, for the actual clinical, the medical diagnosis, you know, you definitely want um, a psychologist, psychiatrist, a physician, um, someone in that has specific training. Um, clearly, you can go to a psychologist, um, but you really want to go to someone who specializes and who is training. And I've said this earlier that knows the subtleties um, because it is incredibly important. You can pick the tools in your battery, but unless you know how to use those instruments and know how to really look at the data given, you know every source of information that you're getting, then you could easily misdiagnose or miss a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as recently just going through a couple of studies that were looking at like the ADOS, which is that golden standard, but they were looking at like ADHD and autism, which there's a high yeah. overlap, especially in the social deficits and they yeah. can really mimic each other. But I think it was in the study they had, maybe 20, was it 21% of children that had ADHD but not autism actually tripped the autism measure on the ADOS. And I think it was 30% of kiddos with ADHD tripped the ADIR that did not have autism, but they actually did meet those instrument um, thresholds. So... You know, when you're looking for people to do a thorough autism evaluation, make sure that you are really picking a clinician who does have that specialty and does have that experience. Um, You also want to, you know, make sure that it's a clinician who adds in extra, you know, measures when they're needed, like, um, you know, test of their developmental language, especially in mild forms of autism that might not be always caught with the ADOS 2, which if you're a young female, that, you know, that risk does go up that you might do very, well, not very well, but decent enough on the ADOS to not fall within a high a high range of autism symptoms. So you want these extra measures that capture the nuances of what might, you know, might be a struggle, what may not be a struggle. What would some of those be? I'm sorry, say that one more time. What would some of those measures be? Like what would be examples? 
Yeah, so um, my typical battery to include, you know, the the EDOS and ADIR uh, or things like um, I'll do the NEPSI, the social perception battery. It goes through like affect recognition. So how someone can read uh, and accurately identify an emotional face and match mm -hmm. them. Um, it also has a theory of mind mm -hmm. uh, uh, test on there. There we go. My word just went out of out of my mind. Um, but it goes through like theory of mind that really tests a kiddo's ability to kind of step outside of their own experiences and their own thoughts and intuit the intentions um, of others. And it also goes into like cause and effect and it goes into decoding the uh, literal, uh, non-literal language, um, everything that's kind of wrapped up in theory of mind. I also like the, uh, we recently introduced this into our batteries, the social language development test. Mm -hmm. It's, it's phenomenal. That's um, about, yeah. 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 It just gives such good, it gives quantitative scores as well, but just like the qualitative data that I get from observing a youth okay. trying to intuit what someone in a picture is thinking or feeling or, you know, them having to come up with problem solving techniques to make their friend feel better. Right. So like there's, you know, you, what could you say to, to make your friend feel better in this situation versus this? It's great. Um, and so for the, especially the young ladies who know how to look at me and who know how to do follow-up questions and give me a smile, I really make sure to give them this, to really get a good understanding of how much they actually process, understand, um, and are knowing what's going on in the social dynamic. Um, I also give things like radar forms. I, I I mentioned those earlier where I get radar data from across settings. Like a Basque or something. Yeah, the Basque, um, the social responsiveness scale, so the SRS2, those types of, those types of radar forms. Um, and then, of course, clinical observations and in-depth developmental history, for yeah. sure. Um, because you really want, you want multiple sources. You have to see kind of across settings, across relationships. And if you can make sure that you're getting raters or at least people you talk to that consistently see this person in a social context, mm -hmm. whether it's romantic partners, their teacher at school, um, someone outside of the, the familiar family unit. Mm -hmm. Um, but those are kind of the big components and also cognitive testing. You want to make sure you're getting both a nonverbal and a verbal measure. Um, a lot of times you'll see a lot of splintering in cognitive abilities, but also verbal abilities. Um, so you want to make sure that you have a good concept of the person's cognitive profile because one that just gives amazing data for educational planning, but also therapeutic planning. If you are noticing their verbal comprehension um, is either average or below average or, or lower, but they have like these great visual spatial skills and mm -hmm. you know, great working memory, you can definitely include that in kind of the, the format or the mediums that you work with them educationally, therapeutically, whatever it may be. Um, 
And then adaptive, right? Like a and adaptive. Yep. And we always, you know, the violin or the A-boss. Um, but there's typically what you'll see is a really large gap between say like cognitive abilities mm-hmm. and adaptive abilities. Yep. You, I, I can't tell you how many times frustrated parents have told me they're like, they are so smart. They should know how to do this. But I'm like, you're talking about two separate things. They are incredibly intelligent. You're completely right about that. But going through their daily life, establishing and doing their daily routines and self-care or community use can be very challenging, whether it's from self-initiation, executive functioning difficulties that are going on. Maybe it's just a self-motivation thing sometimes, but you typically see a big gap um, between cognitive abilities and adaptive, how they go through their daily life. And I had heard that um, kind of as a child gets older, and, and again, this is probably very normed on males, but that that adaptability, that, um, the, that gap between where they should be and where they are, that that actually grows wider in terms of the adaptive abilities. And so I know it's recommended to kind of just keep assessing those adaptive abilities. And I think therapeutically, like, you know, that's something I think about as somebody who, you know, I don't really do autism evaluations anymore, although it's definitely something I kind of want to rethink. But most of what I'm doing is therapy. And I, I know that those adaptive abilities, like in terms of not, I already talked about that self-acceptance and kind of like managing life and figuring out what you need to sort of get through life and that how that piece, I, I work with that piece with autism, but I feel like those adaptive skills are kind of another area too, right? In terms of being able to function in life. Yeah, I actually, um, I, I think there's a lot of utility in doing what we call interval testing. Um, sometimes I tack on cognitive as well. So especially for younger kids, a cognitive profile on a neurotypical child, you'll, you'll see even out around like seven ish. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you have any neurodevelopmental disorder, autism, ADHD, sometimes it takes until about nine, it can take nine to really even out and, not solidify the brain still growing, but a little more of a, a good picture of cognitive abilities. So what I'll recommend is, um, you know, as they hit milestones, getting updated adaptive functioning testing, the earlier, if they had it like an early cognitive measure, I do recommend getting updated cognitive testing between seven and nine, just to kind of keep pace with that brain maturation. I actually mentioned that to somebody, a family member, actually, who, not my sister, um, my sister, I talk about my sister, she has a child on the spectrum, but somebody else and, um, their child had been diagnosed with autism. I mean, I think when he was like four or five, but they also diagnosed an intellectual disability. And, and what I said was, that's a little young. Uh, I mean, I, um, there obviously there are cases where it would be appropriate, but you know, I think that's a little young. And I mentioned like that might not be accurate. You, it, it may be good to just get that updated and reevaluated because yeah. you may find that your child does not have an intellectual disability, right? It, it, that that autism yeah. may have really masked um, some of what they could do. And if you're thinking about what that cognitive test is measuring. If, if the directions are not well understood, 
because of mm-hmm. some of the receptive language or language, um, I guess, yeah. I guess even like the expressive language, but really that receptive language would impact your ability to understand the instructions and therefore perform accurately on that test. So, I mean, I really do yeah. have a lot of stuff that goes into that and it really should be reevaluated. You know, me and um, my colleagues, we, we have like uh, an office meeting every Monday. Now it's through Zoom. But one of the reasons why I love, <laughs> I love my colleagues, we get into these kind of these discussions, these theoretical discussions about what we do, you know, autism evaluations. And that was one that we recently had is, you know, cognitive testing for a kiddo on the spectrum. And like, clearly we need to have the the cognitive measure there. Um, There's actually a qualifier in the medical diagnosis of with or without an intellectual impairment because it it has profound effects in in treatment and outcomes and what to expect if there is an impairment there. But it's always a tricky situation because say even a kiddo has intact expressive and receptive language. Do you know how many times I've had kiddos on the spectrum get to some of the tasks and they're so rigid yeah. in how they think the rules are that they bombed something or like I couldn't, um, on some of the time tasks, they, they have perfectionism. Sometimes perfectionism yeah. comes in and it has to be just right. So they go over time. It wasn't the yeah. fact that they couldn't solve it. Yeah. It's just they were taking most of the time, literally just getting it right as they needed it. Right. And I'm imagining a block design that could go like, that could be, very, oh my God. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or, um, you know, there's a lot of split between abstract and vocabulary. I, for people who know the uh, cognitive testing, we, we do verbal comprehension on the WISC or the WIPSI or the WACE, the Weschler Intelligence Skills. Um, but what I find is there's this, this kind of ceiling sometimes to the abstract right. answers. And that's very common in autism. Now to say, well, is that does that mean that their cognitive abilities are lowered or is there this mediating factor that is actually lowering or negatively impacting the scores? And it's very, I wouldn't say it's rare, but it's actually in the minority of when I'm writing up reports, it's not very often where I can just state the scores. Here you go. (laughs) Here's that. I really try to take time and attention and say, you know, this is what's really lowering these scores. So while it's probably not an accurate reflection of this true cognitive ability that I'm trying to get at, this does have implications in the classroom. If this rigidity was here during cognitive testing, I can guarantee you it's going to be on a test too. Yeah. Or a writing assignment Mm -hmm. wherever in life. Yeah. So, you know, the cognitive has its, its, usefulness but you know sometimes I say that that one the FSIQ score that's supposed to to be a capture of all five of the different domains we test and that's full scale just for people who don't know that's oh like you no it's okay I just want to make sure <laughs> yes yeah, so, it's the full scale IQ which is like when people are like 
what's your IQ? And which it's for those of us who measure it, it's like, that's not, like when you can oh. actually state the full skill IQ, which is often for at least the people I evaluate, I often cannot state the full skill IQ because there's such a huge split. Yes. It, it's, it's not a very meaningful number. It's more about how you interpret the test. Yes. And I sometimes in some cases, I'll just say this is probably the least meaning meaningful score I can give you today. <laughs> um, because it's most meaningful when the five discrete areas that we test for are even like as the more even those five scores are the more valid that one IQ score is. But in autism, we have this splintering um, and often we see uneven abilities. We might see a really good strength and a really big struggle. And so oftentimes, more so than in any of the other type of testing that I do in my practice, um, autism evaluations typically, I have to do a little more calculation of scores that help inform well, what are this person's strengths? What are the cognitive struggles? Um, but it's still so meaningful. You just have to take it for what it is and not what we want it to be. Right. right? We'd love a number to say, this you're brilliant. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. This is how smart I am. And I know that sometimes for adults who've been measured using IQ tests that aren't really IQ tests, they're not like a true cog test. They're like those things they gave when they were in elementary school that yeah. was like we're gifted and talented. And there's a huge difference in, in when, when you give those versus when you give a true IQ test. I had heard that there can be I mean, like a 20 point split, which is huge. I mean, yeah, yeah that's, that's, so they're not always the most accurate. So sometimes people are disappointed. Yeah. Oh, well. But at the same time, the one thing that I, I really try to bridge over, because cognitive scores, is that's definitely an area where, as psychologists, we can, we can geek out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. But for families, you know, it's this, this bridge of really just understanding and appreciating their child or maybe their spouse or whoever they came with appreciating their brain. Mm -hmm. We need as a society, as a world, we do really need people on the spectrum. The way their brain works sometimes is just phenomenal and it's focused and it's detail oriented. And there have been, some very beautiful things that have been created by minds of people with autism. And I think that's just that further, you know, furthers our discussion that it's not something to be cured mm -hmm. by any, something to capitalize on. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's a great stopping point. So where, where can people find you? So if people are interested in, mm -hmm. I know you, you told me about that amazing blog post. Remember the oh. blog post on, on um, female autism, right? And yeah. I don't know if that was for Elevated Insights or if that was your own blog, but where can people find you? Yeah, so I am currently a clinician at Elevated Insights Assessment. We are a group practice in downtown Denver. Uh, we do about 90% of our evaluations are autism evaluations from uh, ages three and up into adulthood, we can accommodate pretty much any age group. Um, I mean, we do also other types of testing, a lot of differential diagnoses. So I'll have a lot of kiddos come in with 
or, or adults, I keep saying kiddos, but, um, you know, people coming in with ADHD that might also have autism or maybe they were misdiagnosed mm -hmm. um, or learning disabilities. So we kind of run the whole gambit of testing, but we definitely specialize in autism the most. Yeah. And, and I have to say when I have, I've actually referred three people to you in the last two weeks. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, when I have a, when I'm like, Hmm, I'm not sure, but I think this person very likely is on the spectrum or if somebody comes to me for an evaluation, cause I'm not currently doing autism. And, and even if I was, when there's situations that I feel like are so subtle where I'm like, I want to make sure that this is thorough. You're the person I refer to because I'm like, what I say is, I don't know for sure if your child is on the spectrum, but if mm -hmm. they are, it will for sure be sort of, I don't want to say like caught, but they, it will for sure be like, like diagnosed. If it's there, she'll find it. And so well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the, the confidence that, you know, this <laughs> is, <laughs> you know, we, we try to be really thorough and, you know, it's this, I, I approach my evaluations with this idea that, you know, labels and diagnoses, they're pragmatic at best, right? They, they help for services. They might help to get access to communities and um, or other types of treatments or accommodations. It's very practical. But, you know, that's not the end-all be-all. You know, evaluation should never just be, is there a diagnosis or not? Right. by done leave right you know it's really my job to be able to conceptualize and capture strengths and struggles and really draw in as much as I can to comprehensively understand what is going on because there are people who honestly for several different reasons might have social delays but they do not have autism um, they might have a speech history I've, I've had a lot of kiddos come in with just a very a speech delay and struggles with speech and then which compounded into social difficulties and I was able to tell the parents like we're gonna have to do some social treatments but they don't have autism right and that's um, where those recommendation pieces come in and that's what I've like explained to people is it's not just when I've done evaluations it's not just the diagnosis really there's this recommendations piece which is how does who you are or who your child is, how does that, how do we fit them into the world in a way that makes sense for them and is functional for them? And that's where those recommendations are because those are truly tailored and individualized yeah. to who they are and how they present, not necessarily just diagnostically. So. Well, that is why I found my home here at Elevated Insights. Um, I'm going to toot my colleagues and the owners of this practice their horn a little bit because. I'd always done it in my professional, you know, practice as a singular clinician, but this practice I think is the first group that spends a, a good amount of report writing time literally just trying to resource the individuals we're serving and really recommending either connecting them with community resources or recommending treatments or making sure that we have, you know, recommended providers, um, community organizations, um, because they came for a reason. There's concerns. And regardless of if there's a diagnosis or not, 
as a clinician, I still want to be able to support and really speak to those concerns in a way that's helpful and they have next steps. Yeah, totally. I, I, I agree. That's the most important. Well, I am so happy that we were able to do this interview. I think we're actually going to make this two episodes because there's just it's information. <laughs> it's a lot. You know I mean? Well, and, yeah. and that's important though, because this was like, I, I really wanted to do, I wanted to do autism right. And so, you know, I wanted to wait until we really like could do it correctly and have all the information mm -hmm. in there. And so, um, yeah, we'll make this two different episodes and I think it's going to be really helpful to a lot of people. So Dr. Jenna Scott, who works at Elevated Insights in Denver, thank you so much. It was so lovely to have you as part of our um, podcast. I, I was very happy to be here. It was a lovely conversation, and yeah. I, I love talking about autism. So okay. <laughs> I will, I'll be here any day. <laughs>